welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm in the remote recording studio today with my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, Medea and I spoke with director Laura Poitras about her latest documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which looks at celebrated photographer Nan Golden's fight to hold the powerful Sackler Pharmaceutical family to account for the damage inflicted across American communities by the drug OxyContin. We've had Laura on the show before, so we're longtime admirers of her documentary work, and this was no exception. It's a beautiful film, both aesthetically beautiful to watch, but also an incredible portrait that told me so many things about Nan Golden that I did not know at all, but also an incredible portrait kind of taking us inside and on the front lines of this fight against the Sackler family, basically to have their names removed from the art institutions that their pharmaceutical money funds. It's a very thorough presentation of Nan's work and her life, you know, really beginning when Nan is a child, sort of interweaved, I would say seamlessly, with her contemporary work against the Sackler family, the protests that she and the group she started called Pain have done at various museums across the country and in Europe, because the Sackler money is just I mean, it's truly everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and something that I guess we didn't get to talk to Laura so much about, but I thought was super interesting. It's just like a subject that I'm really interested in in general that this movie, I think, deals with in a really interesting way is like, is a subject of shame, which is something that pain is battling against, which is the shame and the stigma of being an addict and getting treatment for addiction like you'd get treatment for anything else. And how shame is also part of Nan's work, but also Mm -hmm. how ultimately shameless the people who have power and money are (laughs) and how they kind of... Yes, beautifully done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And really literally getting away with murder. Yeah, that's what we talk about this in the end. You kind of were asking, Laura, about the way the movie ends with the Sacklers by court order have to kind of witness these video testimonials of the victims and the families of victims of of OxyContin addiction. And you're right. They seem utterly unmoved, you know, just kind of sitting there staring at the camera, you know, these people telling heartbreak. I mean, it moved me to tears just hearing. And, you know, we're hearing not the hours of testimony that they did, but just like the kind of edited, like packaged version that comes in the film. And it is... Yeah, exactly what you say, that that complete dichotomy between the way that we treat shame for people who have, you know, in Golden's work, different sexualities, you know, are kind of underclass or have addiction and things like that, right? Personal shame is very operable. And yet this kind of corporate shame is non-existent. And these are people who have literally killed people, you know, I'm not saying like it just is galling. And also, I think it asks this larger question that I know both of us are interested in, which is kind of the way that the arts gets funded. You know, that's like a big part of this story is this kind of sometimes behind like the beautiful exhibit or the mind expanding novel or whatever that art object that has transformed your everyday moment is. Sometimes it's like a billionaire who maybe doesn't always have the best of intentions. Or this is a way I think the film kind of stages it as the art investment is a kind of way of whitewashing or brand washing the kind of 
other means in which all of this money that goes to fund the arts, like where it actually comes from. Yeah, totally. And Laura does a, a really beautiful job of exposing that and talking about it. All right, well, let's get to that interview, shall we? Let's do it. We are thrilled to have Laura Poitras with us on the line today. Laura is the award-winning director and producer behind such documentaries as Citizen Four, which was the Oscar-winning 2015 exploration of Edward Snowden's revelations about America's rise as an ultra-surveillance state spying on its own citizens, as well as Risk, which covered Julian Assange, and which we spoke to Laura about on this show when it came out in 2016. Laura joins us today to discuss her latest film, the Oscar-nominated All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Congratulations, by the way. The film focalizes on celebrated photographer Nan Golden's efforts to bring the Sackler pharmaceutical family to justice for the damage their lucrative opioid OxyContin has wreaked in communities across America. Herself a recovering OxyContin addict who started using the drug as part of a post-surgery pain management therapy, Golden digs in with a team of fellow activists seeking to have the Sackler's name removed from the walls of the many art institutions where their money has supported exhibitions and even entire wings. Blending a biographical look at Golden's work, whose photos and activism from the peak of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s and 1990s have made the photographer an enduring cultural voice, with tense, up-close shots of die-ins and other actions at Sackler-funded museums, all the Beauty and the Bloodshed is a powerful account of art, activism, and the struggle to be heard among the din of money and the cultural and political power it concentrates. Welcome to the show, Laura. It's great to have you back. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Laura. I wonder if we could just start, if you could tell us a little bit about how you met Nan and became involved in this project. Yeah, sure. Maybe I'll talk first about how I met Nan through her work, because I was introduced to her work before I met her personally. And I studied filmmaking in San Francisco at the San Francisco Art Institute, which is sort of more of an avant-garde experimental film program, and was, in the course of studying, introduced to many artists there, and one of them was Nan. This would have been in the late 80s, and she had released her book, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency, who came out in 86. So I, I had a copy of that, was blown away by it. I mean, like the kind of intimacy, the rawness, the sense of space, the characters, you know, it was riveting. She was still traveling at that point. The Ballad of Sexual Dependency, which is also a slideshow, is presented, you know, with music. She would be traveling city to city herself, sort of doing the timing with music. And so it was a live performance throughout the 80s and the early 90s. And I never saw it live, but I had a good friend who worked at the Pacific Film Archive. And they talked about, oh, my God, I had this experience with, you know, Nan Golden came and she showed her work. And, you know, and then later I encountered it in museums and more sort of, you know, different spaces. And, you know, she's always been an artist who's just been an inspiration. I mean, so groundbreaking, revolutionary and also so cinematic. Right. I mean, people talk about the power for photography, but the kind of sense of storytelling, the use of music and the juxtaposition of music and images. So all of that was like very much part of my formative years as, as a filmmaker. But I wasn't, I didn't move to New York until 92 and it didn't meet her then. And it wasn't until 2004 that we met. And that was when I finished Citizen Four. 
And we were both at a film festival and we met. And so we kind of knew each other. There was some mutual respect because we'd each seen each other's work. She'd seen my work and I, of course, knew hers very well. So that was our first encounter. And then fast forward to 2019, we had breakfast and we were meeting about another situation of toxic philanthropy in the art world relating to the Serpentine Gallery in London. And... Um, notorious cyber weapons company, NSO Group, and the relationship between that and Jan Peel, who was the former executive director. At that point, Nan had already started doing these protests against the Sacklers in the museums. I'd been following it very closely. I was very excited about it. I'd heard a rumor she was working on a film, and I was really excited. You know, as the documentarian in me was really excited because I think we need histories of these such movements. And then she said in this first meeting, she's like, you know, I'm looking for people to join the project. And sort of that's how I entered. First she said I was looking for producers. And then after that, I was like, are you also looking for a director? And she said yes. And then we met. Can you talk a little bit about, there's a number of shots in the film that occur right in the middle of a direct action. So this would be, there's one amazing scene in the Temple of Dendur, which for those who have not been there, it's in the Met Museum in New York. And it's this palatial, very famous space. Lots of parties are held there. And there's a direct action there where there's a die-in and they throw pill bottles into, there's a, a kind of water area right in front of the temple. And there's another one. A, a, a little fake moat. There's a fake, a fake moat. moat. Yes, exactly. Or a and fake then dial. Yeah. And then there's another one in the Guggenheim, which is on film, I mean, purely beautiful. And also as an action, it is quite beautiful where the activists kind of hang banners decrying the Sacklers and the opioid crisis from the kind of rotunda, the circular rotunda that goes up the Guggenheim. And then they shower the entire place with a bunch of prescription pad kind of sheets. So how did you film that? Because there's, I'm imagining just like how you got in there, both trying to keep it secret, because that's the whole point of actions like this is to kind of have the sense of surprise, but also to capture incredible footage of like, you know, very beautiful and moving, even also moving politically in terms of seeing what they were doing. So can you talk about that embedded? Yeah, I know that you're sure. a big embedded documentarian. So what were some of the, the tricks you used to get those shots? Well, I can take credit for all of those shots because as I just mentioned, so Nan and I got involved in the project they started filming internally. So this is a project that Nan initiated, which is she's a full producer on the film and collaborator. So they were so smart and it emerged internally. So as they were planning these actions, they also said we should document them. So they snuck in the cameras and got lots of all these amazing shots. And then you also had like spectators coming in and taking shots and other other filmmakers. So there was, you know, many different cameras, like we like 20 different cameras, you know, that would shoot a particular protest. And but, you know, going back to the protests themselves, the group that Nan created, which is called PAIN, which stands for Prescription Addiction Intervention Now, is made up of members who have a few things in common. One of them, they all have a relationship to addiction either themselves or loved ones or lost, and they are artists. And so they love museum spaces. They want them back. <laughs> um, they want to call out toxic philanthropy and um, blood money and in these institutions, but they also have a sense of the drama of the situation, and they wanted to do actions that were spectacular and sexy, and that were also drew in the audience that was at the museum so that they would join and wouldn't, you know, felt that it was, they could be part of it. And you see that at the Guggenheim where, you know, everybody goes to the rotunda and everybody's chanting, but like 
pain is only a small group of those people. So it kind of invites people, but then also would be, they could be photographed and create media attention because they wanted to, you know, shame the Sacklers and get the institutions to stop taking money and to take down the name. And so they just had this sort of like sense of spectacle. And it was done in a very, the way that Payne worked, it's a very small group. They would meet on Wednesday nights at Nan's in her living room. The room you see is her living room. They ordered pizza. And it was sometimes a rotating group, but usually about 12 at any given time. So it's a very small group of people. And they would just plan like, okay, how are we going to do these actions? And so it was really thoughtfully done. And for me, when going back to my first discussion with Nan about the film, she was like, we've been filming all of it. And I just, my heart skipped a beat, you know, I was like, thank you for filming it. You know, like we need these histories. Like that's how you, you know, you learn and movements and other organizers can take from what they've done and do their own thing with it. And, you know, their very pain is very inspired by the work of ACT UP. Obviously that's very much in the film. I did actually have the opportunity of filming some of the protests, but just, I just don't want to, I wasn't there at the Met. What do you think is important about exposing toxic philanthropy like the Sacklers, like the Serpentine Gallery that you talked to Nan about when you first had that lunch? Why is that important for people to know about or to learn about? I mean, for on a number of different levels. One, you know, these are institutions that are, you know, for the public, right? And the devastation of the overdose crisis, which has been fueled by oxycon it's just, it's unimaginable. I mean, the death toll, I mean, we're getting over half a million. Some people will go higher than that, depending on where you begin to start to look at the numbers. And these institutions are for the public and to support art, and they shouldn't be for whitewashing of this kind of money, right? And so I think there's that piece of it. I also think it points to a failure of government, right? That this is a problem that should have been dealt with 20 years ago when it was first reported in the New York Times by like great journalists like Barry Meyer that there was a problem. You know, that was in West Virginia at the time and it was in Maine that OxyContin was was being promoted as non-addictive or underplaying as how addictive it was and was devastating communities. And we've known that since the early 2000s. The government should have shut it down. We should never be here. We should never be even having this conversation, right? This is not a, you know, oh, isn't it great that Nan had to risk her career to, you know, get the, the name off these museums. It's like, what's wrong with this country that didn't take action when they knew and when they have this sort of, you know, the powerful lobbying efforts of big pharma that just kept focusing on profits and kept allowing these drugs to, it's important to say the problem isn't that pain medications are necessary in certain contexts, right? Of course we need strong pain medications, right? The crime here with OxyContin and Purdue Pharma and the Sackler families is how they promoted it. And they got the FDA to put a label on this drug that downplayed its addictive properties. They went to doctors and they said, don't worry, it's got, it's, there's a time release, you know, it's safe. They then started taking the doctors that sold more got taken on vacation. And so there's all these kickback schemes, et cetera. This has all been well, well, well reported. So all this is going back to like your original question about why is it, it feels like cultural spaces are maybe like the one venue that are where people feel like they can express their outrage towards the failures of their governments. And I think we're seeing that, you know, also around like the climate crisis and in other contexts when really we need our politicians and our, you know, if we have judicial systems, they need to function differently. 
One thing along those lines that I kept thinking about as I was watching the film, and I wonder if you had any of these conversations with Nan, is how haunting it must have felt for her because of her work in ACT UP and the fight against HIV AIDS, which must have felt, I don't want to draw too many parallels, but I think there's kind of at least one large one that's eerily familiar in the fight against the Sacklers is the fight against big moneyed government interests who don't care who they hurt and then turn a blind eye to the most vulnerable people in our population. I mean, even though we should also say that the specific opioid addiction, as well as the HIV AIDS crisis, it doesn't just impact the most vulnerable. It impacts everybody who got those pills, everybody who got them. And so I'm wondering if this felt a little bit for Nan, like history repeating itself or how you guys also, you know, in your own history too, like reflected those homologies. Yeah, you know, I think, thanks for that. And we should at some point pivot because I oftentimes, you know, I find myself also talking about the political aspects of the film where there is also this sort of very, you know, it's also very much a film about art and how, like what drives people to make art and the sort of poetry of it and the heart of it. But yeah, I mean, it was haunting. I mean, Nan has suffered unspeakable loss, unspeakable loss as have so many people in this country and due to failure, the complete failure of a government. And so to see or to have lived through as Nan did the loss of so many people in the AIDS crisis and the government's failure to respond. And then to sort of see that happening again, you know, was why, I mean, she describes that as one of her motivators, why she had to do something. She can't lose another generation, she said. And this is like, you know, again, the kind of, the sort of historical amnesia of this country that we don't reckon with our past, our crimes, our atrocities. We don't reckon with them and they, they go unpunished and then unprocessed. And then we see these things happening over and over. And Nan shares so much about her life, both in her artwork itself. It's so raw. It's so emotional. It's so It goes to such deep places. And she does also in this film. And I think she does it because she wants to sort of shift dynamics of like where we place shame and stigma in the society, right? That it doesn't belong on people who are suffering. It actually, this shame and stigma, there is a place for it in society. And it, you know, in this case, it's with the Sacklers, right? It's with people who are making the choice to profit off of people's suffering and do nothing when they realize it's leading to death and just only care about their profit. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Laura Poitras, director of All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. We are joined by the translator Anne Goldstein today. Her most recent translation is of a novel. It's called The Forbidden Notebook. It's by Alba de Cespedes. And Anne is joining us to give us a book recommendation. And what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend actually five books. <laughs> The Cazalet Chronicles by Elizabeth Jane Howard. It's sort of like a, a later foresight saga. It's a, English. It's about a family starting in about in the ni- late 1930s and living through the war and into the 50s. And it's really, I mean, if you like, if you like English novels about wars <laughs> or about what people do during the war, it's not about the fighting. It's about the people, this big family of children and grown-ups and how they deal with it and how they deal with their the people who are fighting. And it's just a great, it's a family saga, really. But she does this great thing where 
she changes voices all the time. She changes whose perspective she's telling the story from. So it's like a first person choral. It's not a chorus, but it's people, the soloists in the chorus who are speaking at different times. I recommend it. And plus, if since it's there are five volumes, you don't have to think what you're going to read next for five, five big volumes. <laughs> Can I ask, how did you come across this book? Somebody recommended it to me. A friend of mine recommended it. And I think it's been recently reissued. The first one was published in, in 1990, but it's about this much earlier period. Mm. I just finished rereading Bride's Head Revisited. Fits right in. It fits right in. I Well, I was curious, what class? They're sort of upper middle class. Okay. Yeah, not, not aristocrats, but sort of upper middle class, you know, with some money troubles, but they have a big house. And again, you know, it's people devastated somewhat by the war. Mm-hmm. But I, I just, um, De Cespedes' first novel is also, it's not a first person novel, but it has eight different voices in the same way where it's constantly shifting between the different, there are eight main characters and it's always shifting between the eight main characters in a similar way because she doesn't tell you now we're coming to the next, there's no signal that you're in somebody else's voice and suddenly you realize, oh wait, this is so-and-so. <laughs> And it's the same with Elizabeth Jane Howard. She doesn't tell you. you. You recognize it pretty quickly, but it's a sort of a great technique, I think. Well, Anne, will you tell us the title of the book again, or the collection of books and the author? The first one is called The Light Years, but I think altogether they're called The Cazalet Chronicles. Elizabeth Jane Howard. Thank you so much, Anne. Oh, thank you. We've been speaking with Anne Goldstein. Her most recent translated work is a novel. It's called Forbidden Notebook by Alba de Cespedes. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Laura Poitras, director of All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. You did a, a really great job. I imagine there was a certain amount of tension there between like kind of telling, as you said, Nan's art has covered a lot of these topics, you know, amongst different communities at different times. And so there's a kind of push and pull between the kind of biopic documentary about who Nan Golden is, her history, and then also this, the immediate story, which is the kind of documenting the fight against the Sacklers. And so I'm wondering how you kept those things in tension and if the threads which you weave together, the loss of her sister, the way that she's documented these kind of communities and fought for communities for years over the course of her career, the incredible intimacy of her photographic work. Did you see all those threads at the beginning or were those things that organically came together as you were putting together your interviews and then editing the film? It's a good question. And I'll begin by saying I was didn't want to make any kind of a traditional artist biopic. I wanted to make something that would be described as a portrait of an artist and what led her to sort of this moment and this sort of contemporary fight. So I was interested in particular questions and I wanted to make a film that would stand alone as a film that wouldn't lean too much on the fact that it had somebody who was a renowned person as the protagonist, right? That it had to function on its own terms. And I, and it had very specific questions. Like I wanted, I didn't want it to have like a sort of sense of epic scope 
because I think it's covering these different chapters. I mean, actually different decades, right? So you've got the 50s through her sister Barbara and the sort of sexual repression and sort of Nan coming of age and, and her, you know, sort of the documenting of trans and queer communities. And then you have the devastation of AIDS and then all of that collides with the contemporary moment. And hopefully those resonances speak to each other. So I wanted to sense it needed to be epic, almost operatic in its kind of scope. And that it would be both drawing upon, you know, and it's very much in collaboration with Nan, that you would learn of Nan's work, but not because there would be some curator or expert telling you why to care, like why this work, where it sits in his, you know, whatever, art history. I, I could care less about that. I want the audience to experience the work as the audience, you know, directly. And so we excerpt her work through her slideshows and a large percentage of the film is told through her stills, which are incredible. I mean... To be able to collaborate with Nan and be able to sort of chart these historical moments and tell it through these, you know, with these works of art. I mean, the, one of the sections that I love the most is the second chapter, which is called The Coin of the Realm, where Nan sort of coming of age and she beats her dear friend, David Armstrong. And she goes from feeling like she can't speak to being given a camera that gives her a voice. And she takes these incredible photographs of David Armstrong that are fully formed works of art and Nan is a teenager. And I can tell that sort of, you know, like a coming of age story in a film, which is usually possible with fiction films, like in a documentary, because I'm working with and collaborating with one of the great photographers, living photographers, who has made work about their life every step of the way. And so there is this kind of dance between, yes, there's new information in the film that's not in Nan's art, but also Nan's art is about her life. And so there are these sort of mirroring up these elements of what I wanted to do is sort of maybe add layers so that, for instance, David Armstrong, if you know Nan's work, you will have seen him or you will know Cookie Mueller through her photographs and her slideshows, but you'll know them in a different way through the film. And then through Nan's voice, I mean, that to me was the, the thing that changed everything in terms of how to structure the film. When I did the first interview with her, which was only audio, I only ever recorded these interviews with audio because of the intimacy they provided, I was just so emotionally taken away. Like just my breath was taken away by Nan's voice and how she spoke about her life and that she brought the same kind of honesty to how she spoke and the way that she takes photographs. And that I knew that putting those two things together was going to be really powerful. But I always knew that the contemporary through line would be the activism, that that was my hook because of the types of films that you sort of cited, I tend to make contemporary, like, you know, TikTok films, like something is happening in real time and that somebody is taking risks to confront injustice and power in the context of the United States. I mean, that's just kind of a theme that I keep returning to. But then what I think is the heart of the film are these other layers of Nan's life and the people that matter to her, that she loved in some cases, tragically lost. Yeah, there's this part in the in the film when she talks about getting a camera. She's young. She's she's almost literally lost and not speaking. She gets a camera and she feels like she's found a voice. She's found some way of communicating with other people. I wonder if you can identify with that feeling. Did you feel that way when you first picked up Epsa camera? Yeah. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, very much. I mean, I don't compare my work to Nance, but in terms of that feeling of a camera being a way to like, oh, now I have a voice. 
now I can communicate how I see the world. It absolutely changed my life. And I wanted the film to capture that, like that it's, it really talks about like art as something that's, you know, there's a relationship between art and survival and art and expression and art as a life force. And that I didn't only want it to be, you know, a critique of sort of the power within art museums or institutions or toxic philanthropy, all those things. Yes, it, it does, do, you know, but at its core, I feel it's about individuals who are basically saying like, I'm not going to accept the rules of society. I reject the norms. I reject the sort of sexual repression and forging a different relationship and creating work that both, I think, liberated Nan and the people that she worked with, but I think can also liberate other people who see the work. I mean, people come to me after screenings and they say, I was able to come out because of Nan's work. You know, they see themselves in this art. Yeah, it strikes me that there's something very similar in your work in terms of making the secret not secret, of exposing something like even if your focus has been political. Political, right. There's sort of, yeah, there's interesting, like on one hand, very different, but having similar genesis. Right, of identifying something that shouldn't be a secret anymore. Right. And a kind of rage around that. Like, I think I definitely relate to the rage of you know, living in a society that denies things, right? It's like, no, we need the truth, even if the truth is brutal and it's worth risking a lot to get to the truth. And I think, you know, Nan really, she's completely no bullshit, you know? And I think is enraged by a society that denies the facts or denies people who are marginalized, complete rejection of that. As we wrap up here, I do want to talk about risk, you know, and so, on the one hand, congratulations on this being an Oscar-nominated documentary. We're super thrilled about that and excited to see where it goes later in March. But I was thinking about both you and Nan as I was watching the film. I mean, Nan more expressly because she talks about the fact that it's really in some ways only because of Nan's incredible reputation that she was able to take a risk like this, right? We see the the emails where the Sacklers are constantly trying to undermine her to museum personnel. There's also the Sacklers are stalking her and other members of pain, right? It reminded me of that moment from Risk where you realize that somebody may have entered your apartment, right? And, you know, all those kind of things. And I'm, I'm wondering if the acclaim that you have had, you know, is a very deservedly so award-winning filmmaker, does that make it easier for you to make films that tackle the kind of tough topics that you tackle and with the intimacy that you bring to those? And I wonder, I mean, did anyone try to scare you off of this project? Because you're constantly facing big hours squarely trained on your camera lens. Yeah. So first of all, I thought you were going to the film risk about Assange. And so I have to briefly just touch upon the fact that the biggest threat to press freedom that we face in this country right now is the U.S. effort to extradite Assange and put him in jail for the rest of his life for publishing information. And I would say that that poses a real risk to me and every other national security journalist if this happens. So that's the biggest risk I feel like I'm facing right now and that journalists are facing today. You know, in terms of the film, 
Nan was the one, that, you know, taking the real risks here. Nan, and not only Nan, but Payne, the organization of people. And, you know, some of them who have, as you point out, less of a high public profile, right? So Megan Kapler, who you meet in the film, is also followed. You know, she's walking her dog and somebody's taking a photograph of her. She was serious. You know, this was this was really scary stuff to have somebody you don't know. It's like, you know, you're walking your dog and they're taking a photograph. And that's what it's designed to do. I mean, it's designed to intimidate. And it's not like you can't pretend it's not scary. Like it was really scary for Nan and Megan to take on this, a billionaire family. I mean, they have unlimited resources so they can do things like hire their private investigators who can, you know, lurk outside of your house with the intention of being seen, right? Because it's about intimidation. They also have an army of lawyers that they can deploy. And, you know, so there's the risks were substantial for Nan. And, but I think, you know, Nan would be the first to say that she wasn't calculating those risks. You know, she just had to do something when she came out of recovery, read Patrick Braddon Keefe's article in The New Yorker that outlined the relationship between the Sacklers and the museums. She's like, I have to do something. And she you know, strategically knew that she could leverage, that she had a certain type of power that she could leverage and used it. And I think it's really remarkable and commendable. One of the things that struck me at the end of the movie, the Sacklers are ordered by court to watch the testimonies of people who are affected by the OxyContin epidemic. These are very difficult testimonies to watch. I mean, it's one parent after another mourning the loss of a child, people mourning their own lost time. And it struck me as like a very, I had not heard of a court mandating something like that in the past. And it's both quite powerful and at in the middle of it, you hear Nan go, they're not going to feel shame. This is not going to haunt them for the rest of their lives. You kind of see the the Sacklers on, on the screen looking extremely wealthy and stoic <laughs> and pretty emotionless, pretty emotionless. And so it struck me like what a complicated depiction that was of what testimony does, you know, because for me as a viewer, it was incredibly powerful. What does it do to the Sacklers? I don't know. Does it haunt them? It should. It certainly would to me. I don't know what I, I would probably like go divest myself of all my billions and go live alone somewhere. Just But I wonder how you think about the power of testimony, because that's obviously part of what this film does and the sort of complicated representation of it here. Right. I mean, there's different ways. I mean, there's how it functions in the film, which is the antagonist. You sort of finally are faced with them. And so there's that. But in terms of the power of testimony, the parents who the mother plays back the 911 recording of finding her son and she's screaming and there's almost there are no words. You just hear the howls of her pain in a way trying to sort of speak about what is unspeakable, right? Unspeakable loss as you hear her voice. They have been fighting for accountability since their son died. And I think she, know, she gives the number of days. I'd have to go back and listen to the recording, but it's, I don't remember, but it's years and years and years. And so that is coming from a place of like a mother who's realizing that there's been no accountability here for the death of her child. Accountability towards the Sacklers and the complete, again, going back to the failure of the system that here we are, this is in exchange. I mean, the context of the scene is that the Sacklers, they're sued for you know massive civil claims, bigger than the tobacco industry, right? The biggest sort of collection of claims. They 
cleverly had siphoned out their money from the company, you know, billions of dollars. I think that the number is 10 billion in the years before, sort of anticipating that this would happen. And then they're like, oops, God, we're, you know, guess what? We're bankrupt. And then so we can't, we really can't pay out these claims. And then it goes into sort of, then they shopped around to get a favorable bankruptcy judge. And then they move offices. And this judge's name is Judge Drain, which is somehow, I don't know, like out of a movie. And he strikes this deal that gives them unprecedented civil immunity forever. And not just them, but there's 24 pages of lists of all their associates and companies that also are given immunity from future civil litigation. So there was some pushback. And then the states, the states are withholding and said, well, we want to have a meeting where they have to listen to the victims. I mean, that's how it sort of emerged, this scene. It's like so far from justice, right? It's like, this is their the accountability and that they have to spend a couple hours listening to people suffering. So I don't know. I still think that there is a chance for the Justice Department to bring criminal charges. You know, the immunity deal that they're trying to get finalized is civil. So it's relating to civil. And I do hope that that the Justice Department does bring charges against them. Because, you know, going back to one of your earlier questions, not only should they be held accountable, but if they're not being held accountable, then how do we not just repeat this again? How does it not just invite the next company to engage in similar types of behavior? That's a good place to end. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And that hopefully there will be more justice to come in this case. I mean, fingers crossed, but maybe not breath held. But I think that we do have to hold out hope. And certainly films like All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, I think, do do an amazing public service in terms of telling these stories in a way that people can see them and experience them on a more visceral and on the ground level, which is what I've loved about all of your films. I think they take a big headline story and they bring us inside it in a way that makes it visceral and human and shows its beating heart. Thank you so much. No, I really appreciate that. You know, that is, <laughs> I mean, ultimately that's what I try and do. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with director Laura Poitras about her latest film, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.